Hi, this is Don King, author of C.S. Lewis' Poet, The Legacy of His Poetic Impulse, and you're listening to Pints with Jack. His feeling was less than fear. It had in it something of embarrassment, something of shyness, something of submission, and it was profoundly uneasy. This is Pints with Jack, Season 6, Episode 19, The Island, Out of the Silent Planet, Chapter 17. Welcome, everyone. Here on Pints with Jack, we're reading our way through the works of C.S. Lewis. I'm Andrew, and I'm joined by my co-host David and Matt. This season, we find ourselves among the stars, reading through the first of C.S. Lewis's science fiction trilogy, Out of the Silent Planet. We're rapidly coming to the climax of the book, and with it we find uh, in one chapter some of the harshest descriptive language followed by some of the most lush portrayals that Lewis uses. And we also meet a fiffletrig and learn much more about Malacandra and its place in the fields of Arbol, and also Ransom's upcoming fate. So, today's episode is named after the 2005 movie starring Scarlett Johansson and Ewan McGregor. It's called The Island, and it's a movie which I rather enjoyed and which I think speaks rather powerfully to, I'm going to say, various bioethical questions. I'm going to say what those questions are because that would give away the plot, but it's a really good movie. So gentlemen, how are you doing today? We're recording this on Easter week. Holy week. Holy week. And so I'm slightly disappointed. I have such, I've had some of my most profound experiences during these weeks and then I've also had some letdown ones in the sense that I just get such high expectations. And I think I'm not quite at the place I wanted to be spiritually going into this. And so I think there's a slight disappointment with myself going into this. But that's not going to damper the beauty and excitement of the event. Other than just I don't feel my heart is in the disposition to receive all of the incredible graces that come in this. So I think that's the state I'm in. Can I offer you some uh, a word of consolation, Matt? I would love the it. The disciples weren't ready for it either. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. <laughs> they missed most of what was going on in Holy Week, right? And showed up when they shouldn't have showed up mm. and, and ran away when they, uh, when they should have been there. And so, yeah, just grab what you can. And there is a grace in just showing up and doing mm. the things or not in many ways that we can be tempted to do so not abandoning right it's the last week of lent hang on to those fasts hang on to those disciplines think about translating those into easter week and it's okay it's okay to do passion week uh, imperfectly because everybody did except our lord <laughs> how are you doing andrew I'm doing well. It's my first Holy Week as an ordained person. I just marked my first anniversary of at least visiting the church in Winter uh, Winter Garden. And so kind of rolling up my sleeves and got some preaching and some travel and some speaking and and uh, and and we're getting we're getting busy here at Holy Week. And so I'm glad to take a few minutes away with you, my friends, to uh, to dive into this chapter. <laughs> Yeah, my run up to Holy Week has been really wonderful. 
my best man, it's his birthday this week. And so his wife flew us out to Denver to surprise him. And we had a lot of fun, drank a little bit of scotch. We played with each other's kids and we went and did archery tag. So it's kind of like dodgeball, but with bows and arrows where you shoot each other. And he shot me in the face uh, when I wasn't wearing my mask during a break. So that's, that's that's what best men really do. <laughs> <laughs> Not necessarily, Matt. Don't take any notes from that. <laughs> we had a lovely visit from a friend from Virginia. She came and stayed with us and um, she's got some big stuff coming up in her life, some positive stuff. And we got to chat through some of that with her. She had been to Oxbridge with, with us. And uh, so it was just a, a lovely visit. So and now just rolling up our sleeves and and uh, and charging through April. What Elliot said it was the cruelest month, but I don't think he's right. <laughs> well, what's everybody drinking today? Continuing my advent calendar. And so I've got one of these little tubes and it's a, a type I've never heard in my life. Tobermory. Yeah, Tobermory. Yeah, I like that. I was trying to think if there's a way to say that more fancy, but yeah, Tobermory. Um, sounds like Tuesdays with Mori. Great book. 12 year age single malt. Lovely. What about you, David? And I'm drinking Achentoschen. I thought it would actually go rather well with today's toast. And I am drinking uh, Jura. It's the last of my bottles, the Seven Wood. I think it's the, it's, well, I know Malcolm brought me a bottle of Jura when he came actually a year ago. Um, we went to see the cherry blossoms a year ago. And so that's another thing that's been happening. It's a lot of reminiscing because it was a year ago that school was about to wrap up. And so our big transitions are are uh, kind of we're kind of coming up. So since, oh, oh Matt, are you going to do the new language? <laughs> <laughs> David is <laughs> getting way too much pleasure out of this. I'm happy to go for it. I can. I have no, no, we're saying cheers in a different language. It doesn't, one, it doesn't even say what the language is. Mm -hmm. And uh, two, I don't even know what this is. So I'm going to give an attempt, guys. Some, what appears to me to be a made up language for David to mess with me. I have written it phonetically afterwards. (laughs) Which helps. I willijakaja. Iwilij Jakjaj. Iwilij Jakjaj. What is this? What What is this? <laughs> Andrew, you're a linguist. Do you know what language this is? It's Klingon. Oh my goodness, <laughs> you guys. Yes. And it literally means may your blood scream. Oh, good. Excellent. Mm. Well, today we are toasting our top tier supporter, Steve Clancy. Steve, may this Easter season be filled with blessings and new life springing up everywhere around you, in your own heart, and in the, the lives of those you love. I willage jock George. Ewilly. Oh, and I'm drinking I'm drinking Berg, which is Klingon for Scotch. Yeah. <laughs> so I will jack judge. He will jack judge. Oh, that's very good. I'm very pleasantly surprised with this. I told you. Top top ten. Well, now that we're five, four and a half minutes behind schedule, we'll carry on with my one hundred word story summary. Elwyn Ransom is kidnapped and taken to Mars by two evil colleagues who intend to make a sacrifice to the natives so that they might exploit those natives and their planet. But Ransom escapes 
makes friends with one Martian species living among and growing to love them, and participating in their everyday lives. Later, he is summoned to meet the ruler of the planet. Along the way to meet that ruler, he meets two other Martian species, learns about spirits who inhabit the island as well, and he also learns about the common language, some of the Martian customs, and even their mythology, art, and religion. He also strives to defeat his nefarious captors. Here we are in the beginning of the chapter, and uh, we have, I think, a really fascinating instance. We've, we've noticed it, mostly me, former English teacher, obsessing about it. In the first section, we have something really distinctive that happens. So Ransom wakes up. He returns to Augury's shoulder. They continue their journey onto the Malachondrian Heights. They are going to meet Oyarsa. They see a large dust storm. They pass through a mist um, into the Handramet, which means what, Matt? Handramet? It's like the, 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 the land, maybe? The it's valley. Like the, oh, dang. The, the valley. Yeah, good. Well, it's one of those H1s. <laughs> <laughs> Ransom continues his steep descent on Augury's shoulder, and he lets the Sorn go down ahead so that he can climb down on his own feet. And one of the things that really struck out, stuck out to me is this contrast between really harsh language at the beginning and then a paragraph or so later, much different language. So listen to Lewis's word choice. Dull, furiously, waste, terrible, choking, blinding, menace, naked, crawling, drop, burst, conflagration, jagged, giant, and bad teeth. And my notes say, <laughs> uh, insert English dentistry joke here. Mm -hmm. So what's Lewis doing with all of this language? What do you think? What do you make of this? I, I'm trying to over metaphorize this. I like that word to the spiritual journey. And so they're getting closer to the end and maybe they're in that more desolate period when you're on your own personal spiritual journey. Because we're about to start to see the language get back to more of the beautiful stuff as they get closer to the Oyarsa and the, the land opens up incredibly beautiful. So I just think it's it's like the night is darkest before the dawn, I guess is what I'm attempting to describe. And I think that can sometimes happen in the spiritual journey. Think of screw tape letters when it's like, remember how he says at the very end, it's like dark, 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 and all of a sudden you're right through it. And I feel like that language is sort of being used here. Um, I'd like to think it. I definitely think that there's a contrast being set up because we're about to see Meldalorn, mm -hmm. which is this prelapsian Edenic island. And so there's definitely a contrast coming up. But also we've been traveling on the Harandra. We've been traveling very high up on the surface of Malacandra. And we've heard that, that there was this great disaster which killed lots of the animals there. And it's generally a pretty inhospitable place. Mm -hmm. And so this is really just a continuation because when he got to Orgray's tower, he had been experiencing this and then they started on their journey and they experienced yet more of it. And I think this is also just the end of that journey as they're about to finally encounter Meldalon. Well, and it will come as no surprise. Um, prepare your glasses. This is really good scotch, so I'm glad you're bringing this up. <laughs> This is clearly a kind of a foreshadow of the of Orwell's journey up the mountain and up to this terrible task. And then she crests the mountain and comes down into this gorgeous, beautiful valley. And so this is not the last time that Lewis will do this. I don't remember whether or not he has this kind of 
difficult journey up and beautiful lush journey down into the valley in Pilgrim's Regress. I wonder if there's some of that. It's been years and years since I read William Morris as well at the world's end, which was a huge, huge influence on Lewis. So I wonder if he's maybe using some of that, but there's clearly this kind of idea of a, a difficult ascent and a lush and pleasant descent, which we find or while going through in Lewis's best book, have a drink. So what you're saying is I'm not overreading into this. No, you're overreading into it, um, but <laughs> but just in the wrong way. Just in the wrong way. You just needed to mention until uh, we have faces a few more times. I think that's yes. what I'm going to start doing to get validation. I'm going to just give this whole monologue, and I'm going to be like, "Till we have faces," yeah. <laughs> and it just it'll make it right. I taught high school students. I can see right through you. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I applaud the effort, and it's probably not a bad place to start. Andrew, that's because I haven't gone up the mountain yet in The Great Divorce. So you can see through me. I'm a little transparent right now. Ah, okay. That was best work. Okay, yes. <laughs> or gone up the mountain and then gotten down into the valley and drunk of the deep water that gives you vision as into we have faces. Have another drink. Oh, that is good. This is a, you know, you, you can make as many references as you want this episode because this is really good sketch. Hey, <laughs> I'm going to switch from Jura to my Lagavulin 11, Nick Offerman, after this. So. Hmm. So, Ransom arrives in Meldalorn. He sees a beautiful wide valley with a deep blue circular lake surrounded by a purple forest. In the center of the lake is a pyramid-shaped pale red island with tall golden flowering trees. And you have a change of language. As you see in Lewis's best book, this descent into this uh, as he goes to, to have a divine appointment. Listen to the language here. Sloping pyramid like a woman's breast. Not sure what to make of that. The noblest beech trees, cathedral spire, golden flower, bright as tulip uh, as they go down into Meldalorn. So classic, so virginal as this bright grove. It reminded me actually, uh, in addition to Lewis's best book, of Rivendell or even Lothlorien. Mm -hmm. Did that bring that up for you, either of you? I wrote Rivendell. Yes, but particularly later on when he talks about that, that he starts almost tiptoeing around. Everything's peaceful and quiet. Yeah. By the way, Lego Lego has a new Rivendell set. I might have purchased it. Oh. It might be being <laughs> delivered to my house sometime oh. in the next month. You in the flex. Uh, yeah, I got nothing. Mm. I got nothing. <laughs> nope. Looking around, got nothing. Rivendell was like, whenever they ask that question of what's that real or unreal place you'd love to visit, and it tells you something by yourself, I always say Rivendell. Okay, so here's a here's one listener question. Rivendell or Lorien? Mm. Is Lorien in the Ring of Powers, or what's Lorien? No, Lothlorien. It's where, um, it's where uh, Galadriel lives. Galadriel. And it's where, um, according to Tolkien... Uh, Gimli has his conversion to Galadriel, and he hopes that after Lewis dies, when he meets the Blessed Virgin, that there's something of Gimli's meeting of her uh, in it. Mm. And so, yeah, would you spend time in Rivendell or would you spend time in Lothlorien? So, all right, quick vote. I'm for Lorien. Okay, David's for Lorien. I don't know enough of it, obviously, to make a decision. All right, although, uh, remember how Bilbo describes it? Um, it had just those things that you, you know, everything that you like there, if you like to read or if you like to rest or if you like to eat or if you like to sing. So I don't know. Mm -hmm. Maybe Rivendell is a vacation from Lorraine. <laughs> <laughs> so 
talk about getting us off the off the track but um but it's worth delving in such places how does ransom respond when he sees the side of this beautiful um, paradisical place yeah he's not quite sure what he expected and the text says that he's already put aside dreams of it describes it as the engineer's paradise of vast machines but what seems to really strike him is the fact that he had never expected it to be anything so classic he, he actually says so virginal mm-hmm. once again i would refer to star trek insurrection when they come to this advanced race and they live very simply despite the fact that they are technologically advanced they have the knowledge but they just choose not to use it Part of, I think, um, I didn't mention this before, but I think that some of the contrast in language, the harsh language and then the, the, the lovely language, we're coming to the climax and we're coming to the central conflict of the book. And so I think that Lewis is in some ways kind of signaling that. So in the next section, they have a, a, ha- a little gong and a hammer, which I think should remind us of Magician's Nephew. Uh, Lewis uses mm-hmm. that again in later years. And a boat comes being guided by what kind of creature is, is running this boat, Matt? You just love put me on the spot, don't you? <laughs> Harasa. Harasa. And how does he feel about that? You know, couldn't you just give me the victory when I had the victory? I got the first answer. Did we have to push a little bit deeper here, <laughs> okay. Andrew? Quickly. Say till we have faces. <laughs> here, let we... me pitch it to you again. Uh, who's guiding the boat, Matt? I think the Harasa is channeling her its inner Orwall. And just really, you know, it's right <laughs> here. And I here, just let think... me let me pitch it to you better. Uh, so, so the boat comes. Who's who's steering the boat? What what kind of creature steering the boat, Matt? We got the Harassus coming back. Oh, and how does uh, how's Ransom's response to uh, to seeing an old friend? Joyful, <laughs> <laughs> happy. <laughs> His heart warmed to see that it was paddled by a cross. I would imagine like a way Psyche would respond. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, really, he's really psyched. It's kind of like coming home. He's lived with these people for so long. He knows their ways, their language, their culture. And here's one of his friends, even though he didn't know them. We've mentioned before about people traveling abroad and meeting somebody from their own country. There's something particularly delightful about it. Just had to have a drink because David said that they were they were he was really psyched. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's um, I think it's that feeling of being in a foreign country and finding something familiar. This is this is me mm. in Starbucks in China, right? Um, he meets <laughs> an old friend, and it's something that he that he knows. Um, and so, and there's an interchange. What I was I do appreciate in this section. It's just that constant reminder. We're, we're, we're tying this back to some some major themes, but I I, I really liked the interaction between the Harasa and uh, the Sorn Augre. Mm-hmm. I appreciated like the passing of the baton. We've talked m- about how in that more unfallen type of world, everyone has their role. They seem to accept their role. They mm-hmm. don't seem to have aspirations to overconquer others' roles. And it's like, all right, mm. your job was to bring them here. Now you don't get to go. I mean, he doesn't get to go into the promised land, Augre, to some degree. He's got to go back to his tower. It's like he does the heavy lifting and now Harasa gets to bring him much closer to Oyarsa. And he's okay with that. That's, you know, that's an excellent point. And I hadn't thought about this before. Until we have faces. <laughs> no, you spoiled it. Um, he, uh, it's, it, 
they treat each other with a courtesy. And courtesy mm -hmm. is the, the manners of the court, right? It's how royals treat each other. And so um, I think that you're right. This These interactions denote kind of, if not an unfallenness, it's cer certainly more an untainted nobility between the two. You know, it is welcome, Ogre, politely. Is it coming to Oyarsa? Are you also, Ogre, coming to Oyarsa? You can almost hear the note of disappointment in, in Ogre's voice. Oyarsa has not called me. It has not called me. Mm -hmm. So he goes back to his tower. And then um, Ransom makes an extravagant gesture. Uh, what does he What does he <laughs> offer to Ogre? He tries to give him a present. Mm -hmm. And a valuable present at that. Yeah, very valuable. But then it also and very fitting to what we were just talking about. Uh, Augre sort of, I don't want to say, I mean, does reject it, but redirects it towards the Fiffeltrigi mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. he recognizes this would fall in their camp much more. And so it's mm -hmm. that that courtesy dynamic between, cur yeah, courtesy dynamic, I like that, between the three different Hanau. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And for those of you who haven't reread this chapter recently he tries to give him his wristwatch yeah uh, and <laughs> there's a slightly amusing exchange where Orgre asks ransom whether humans don't know how much of the day is left unless they actually have a watch <laughs> and ransom's humble and he says well uh, some of our dumb animals they actually have a better sense of this than we do but we have lost it yes so he uh, he makes this gesture, and then I couldn't wait to see him give the watch to a Fiffeltriggy, but that doesn't happen in this chapter. Spoiler alert. <laughs> so what happens when they actually get into the water on the way to Meldenhorn? Well, Ransom peppers him with questions, and he finds out that all three Hanau species serve Oyasa, mm -hmm. but in different ways. And it's the most natural thing in the world for the Hrossa to be tasked with running the ferry. Right. And... He also learns that he himself, he can go on the island wherever he wants and he will meet Oyasa, but he will be called. And that could be an hour away. It could be several days. And he's told that there are huts available for him to sleep and there's food available if he needs it. And he also tells this Frost a little bit about Earth, about his journey to Malacandra. And he also now warns him about Western and Divine. And then he actually has some regret, the fact that he hadn't emphasized this to Orgre, mm -hmm. um, and then just consoles himself with the fact that uh, Western Divine already have a relationship with the Cerrone in, in some regard. And so he just regards it now as his duty to warn this Ross and the inhabitants of the island. Yes, absolutely. There's also this wonderful sentence, and I almost picked it for our quote of the week. He learned that his own procedure on arriving in Meldalorn must be to go where he liked and do what pleased what he pleased until Oyarsa called for him. And if we are in obedience to God, I think that that's also our job. I'm sure it wasn't Luther, but somebody has assigned to Luther, <laughs> Martin Luther, the, the phrase, love God and do as you please. And if you don't get the order of that backwards, you could, you're in fairly good shape. So um, he's to do as he please until he's called to go somewhere else. And there's, I saw a little statement of obedience in there. Mm. And that has been a theme that we've encountered a few times already. This is why all the bad things happened when they were hunting that Acra, because they weren't immediately obedient. Right. And it cost, it cost, cost Yoy his life. So they, he's in the boat and Ransom purposes in his heart to totally side with Oyarsa. He said he, uh, he had no illusions. He 
All he could do was to make a clean breast of Divine's ultimate designs to Oryarsa. And then the ship touches land. And what do they find there? Well, he sees his first buildings, because mm-hmm. he hasn't seen any of them on Malakandra so far. So there are these low buildings where he can sleep. Not only buildings. What are they like? They're low. Um, we'll find out a little bit more about them later. Right. Um, and he sees some fires, and so he now knows where he can eat and sleep. Everything's provided for. But it's mostly empty. It's described, the rest of the island seemed desolate, and its smooth slopes empty up to the grove that crowned them, where, again, he saw stonework. But this appeared to be neither temple nor house in the human sense, but a broad avenue of monoliths, a much larger Stonehenge, stately, empty, and vanishing over the crest of the hill. So I'll include a picture of Stonehenge in the show notes in case people aren't familiar with it. But it's a, a, a series of stones that probably has something to do with pagan worship and keeping time. And you can find them just outside of Salisbury in England. And uh, famous, as, at least in my upbringing, for its stake. Um, wait. No, not Salisbury State. Uh, you might also <laughs> want to fi- hunt up an illustration from um, Shasta in the Tombs in Horse and His Boy, because you have these mm. big kind of beehive-like monoliths. If you really want to go crazy, you can hunt up a, a picture of the actual brick kilns that were outside the kilns, um, and they look similar to what Lewis is describing here. Mm. Well, actually, this is the second time in this chapter that we've had Eastern references. Mm. You mentioned in an earlier episode that you're reading a book about the Eastern influences on Lewis. Mm-hmm. And we skipped over it, but the the gong itself was intricately designed. And the words that he uses alludes to uh, a, an Arabian design sort of mixed with Norse design. Oh, and you know what? There was a in the hallway, in the kilns, there's a little gong. And they used to ring mm. the gong for dinner. So yes. in horse in magician's nephew, it's a it's a hammer and a bell. Yeah, but it's a gong here, and so yeah, another Eastern reference. And then it all gets a little shimmery. What do you make of all of that shimmery? What does the frost tell him? I'm there on page 108 in the middle. And why does the island seem so shimmery? Do you have that, Matt? Let's go two for two. The Adilla. It's full of them, and we've learned that the Adilla are somewhat like a, a transparent light type of creature, almost like light moving super fast. Sometimes you can see it, sometimes you can't. I'm assuming since there's so many of them moving super fast, it creates this shimmery type of a glow. And maybe in addition, the disposition of Ransom is maybe getting more open to seeing them as well. And as until we have faces. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I'll buy you a bottle of scotch if you can tell me the reference. <laughs> the, the connection. Oh, the castle. And remember how Psyche's disposition can see the castle? Not even close. <laughs> Not even <Dang> close. <laughs> uh, Bardia won't go into the holy valley because it's full of gods. It's the god's place. <laughs> oh, man. So I guess that means you owe me some scotch. Yeah, it does. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'll send you an advent calendar. So, yes, it's full of Eldala and it's shimmering. I rem- remember that he, uh, Ransom, has a little trouble. And here it describes them as you can't quite see them if you look at them. It's almost peripheral. Mm-hmm. And yeah, they're quickly moving. Not only are there many of them, but they're quickly moving because, as we talked about in another episode, in order to look stationary on a planet, they have to be 
rotating on axis like the planet is and revolving around the sun like the planet is and circling in the galaxy like the solar system is. And so uh, there's a complex dance that angels have to do to appear even a little bit stationary on, uh, in our worlds. I would also add that his description of the Adilla and this, this effect, it very much parallels with his description of joy. He says, where he looked hardest, they were the least to be seen. Yes. This isn't something that you can go and look for. It's something that comes to you. You catch just glimpses of it in your peripheral vision. Yes. Yeah. Isn't that like, um, is it quantum physics where when you shine a light on the object to measure a proton or a neutron or electron or something like that, you actually can't measure it because the light pushes it away. So there's this big paradox that when you actually try to do it, it pushes it away. Nothing. Okay. Someone listening to this knows what I'm, I'm, I'm doing. I'm wondering if you're talking about Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, but I will let people that do sciencey things. That very much could be it. What's the uncertainty principle? Yeah. Uh, it's basically when you try and observe it, it changes what actually mm. happens. Yes. And that's to do with, I think, like a wave of light or something. Hmm. Clearly, we are not a science podcast. If you actually understand the stuff, please send us a message at contact at pintsofjack.com. Well, and, and uh, chemistry was my worst grade in high school, and I never took physics. And so you guys are way ahead of me. Although I did serve communion with Sir John Polkinghorne, who is instrumental in some of the early uh, quantum physics and work on the quark, uh, and then became an Anglican priest. So, so he continues to explore the island and then goes up a hill. We're told that he has an experience that he has great difficulty describing. What is it as he's climbing up this hill? It's really a continuation of what he's already begun experiencing on the island. It's the presence of these adilla. Mm -hmm. um, he sees that there are changes in light and shade on the groundweed. And it, it also moves like there's a faint breeze, but there isn't. And... This is where he concludes that it's it's these angelic beings that are that are causing this, mm -hmm. and it produces a very odd feeling, an odd sensation in him. It says it was not exactly uncanny, not as if he was surrounded by ghosts. It was not even as if he were being spied upon. He had rather the sense of being looked at by things that had a right to look. Mm. His feeling was less than fear. It had in it something of embarrassment, something of shyness, something of submission. And it was profoundly uneasy. Yes. And in my notes, I've got written, the great divorce, anyone? <laughs> you have the ghost who doesn't like to be looked at. Mm. You know, the thing I thought about here is, so if we're going back to my overly connecting this to spiritual journey, and I have experienced this before, but as we get closer to saintly type individuals. You're welcome. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> oh, David. Um, you sometimes get a sense, if you feel less authentic. Let's say you're just at a different stage in your spiritual journey. You can sometimes feel really seen. Mm. And I remember this ironically when I was interviewing Sister Miriam James, who just felt like someone so connected to Christ. I actually, I mean, I loved that interview. It was such a gift and a grace to be able to have a conversation with her. I was so nervous. I've never been that nervous because I felt like a fraud. Like I've never felt that way to that extreme. I mean, we all have that maybe to some degree imposter syndrome, but I was like, man, this person's actually doing it right. <laughs> and I just felt super seen, super seen. Mm -hmm. And it was very beautiful because afterwards no one heard this because the whole recording was done, but she just spoke some really beautiful words into me. But it's maybe she sensed <laughs> how insecure I was feeling. <laughs> <laughs> 
but I, I guess that's what I'm trying to describe here. I, I could imagine when you get close to the eternal realm and you feel inadequate that you might feel really seen, maybe. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, mm -hmm. smarmy person who's all, always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you dislike it, him at all, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. Mm. Right. And that sounds like what you described with Sister Mary and James, upon whom be blessings. Mm -hmm. I also chose it for my quote of the, of, of the show because it captures this sense of the numinous, the other, this kind of the, the numinous sense of, of kind of being out of place. His feeling was less than fear. It had in it something of embarrassment, something of shyness, something of submission, and it was profoundly uneasy. He's coming upon creatures, beings that are greater than he is. I think that in describing it as less than fear, it's not like he's coming into the presence of God, but he's coming into the presence of people, not people, but beings who are in the presence of God and who are more directly. And he feels really out of place. And then soon we get him kind of wandering around and not really wanting to go where other people are. He feels a little ill at ease and ill at home. In some ways, especially as we get to the end of his journey, I think he's feeling his humanness. And I think that that kind of feeling of, of shyness, of embarrassment, of unease, I think that is a good feeling to take to God and say, Lord, I don't really belong here. And God will say, yes, of course you don't belong here, but I have made this place for you, right? And you have a role to fill in it. And so this kind of sense of dis-ease um, is, I think, a good one and can be a good harbinger of our own spiritual state and tell us something about what we're, what we're to do next, most of which is obey. Hmm. Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Right. I am a man of unclean lips. St. Peter, Isaiah, when they encountered the divine, they had the fear of the Lord. Yeah. And part of that is understanding God is God and you are not. Bardia too. And seeing something of that chasm. Yeah. Yes, Bardia too. Oh, Bardia. Oh, well, I don't have enough left. Uh, I got to save it for any future references. We'll drink for you. Thank you. <laughs> you know, that, that might be one of the... When I look at my own journey and, and some of the ups and downs, I think to myself, I guess one of the good things that can come out of the downs is I feel like whenever I'm in the presence of the Lord, at least the state I'm in right now, there's no way I'm going to have arrogance <laughs> because like I feel so inadequate, like I'm actually more scared I'm not going to be in the presence of the Lord if my life <laughs> went today, that it would just be like, Peter at the boat falling on his knees when in the chosen, when he sees Jesus Christ and realizes it, it's like, oh my goodness. Um, so I guess that's one big positive. Mm -hmm. So as he's there and kind of given the reign of the island, some other visitors come and he starts to recognize that the Sorns, I love this picture, are wading in the water to Meldalorn. And so there are other visitors there. It reminds me a little of watching the mission with, um, with Martin Sheen mm. about being on the Camino 
and you know you walk the Camino and then you arrive and then everybody all the other pilgrims kind of come in and he feels a little shy about this um what do you what do you make about these these visitors on the island well he compares it to the first day at school uh, and there's actually a scene a very similar scene in surprised by joy and he just decides that he just doesn't really want to deal with it and so he decides to stay where he is halfway up the hill he's going to eat some ground weed and he's going to have a little bit of a sleep Hmm. And I will also add the the temperature that's described. I think this must be Lewis's favorite sort of climate. He says the climate was almost that of a warm, earthy day in late September, a day that is warm but with a hint of frost to come. Yes, and he he talks in Surprised by Joy about how autumn is his favorite season. So yeah, I think that I think that that's that's certainly a likely a likely read. Hmm. And as he wanders around, he begins seeing, um, okay, Matt, I'm going to put you on the spot warning. He sees evidence of the third species in the rocks that, that he's near. Um, what What's the species called? Fifiltrigi. There you go. Fifiltrigi. Yes. Oh, there is an L. Dang there it. is an L. In there. <laughs> yes. And what's on these rocks? What does he see on the stones? Oh, go ahead, Matt. <laughs> Listeners, this is when you know people are that David and Andrew are shocked when Matt knows any details because David's eyes right there when I was going to answer like a details related question was like, oh man, let Matt do this. (laughs) (laughs) No pressure. He sees pictures on on these rocks that I interpreted as I skimmed over the details because that's what my personality does to the meat. (laughs) Uh, you know, I, I got the sense that they were like telling the history of not only uh, Malachandra, but then also the species and traditions and past stuff and also potentially other planets. And yeah. Well, in one of the pictures, he describes it as an upright wavy figure with only the suggestion of a face and with wings. Mm-hmm. And he saw pictures of old red forests with the unmistakable birds flying among them and many other creatures he didn't know. And Ransom wonders whether or not the art of this civilization stretched all the way back in time to the time when there were actually when there were actually was bird life in the highlands if you remember from the previous episode this happened a long long time ago and he also sees a picture which shows that many of them lying dead uh, and it says and a fantastic hanacra like figure presumably symbolizing cold was depicted in the sky above them shooting at them with darts Mm-hmm. Creatures still alive were crowding round a winged wavy figure, mm-hmm. which he took to be Oyasa, pictured as a winged flame. And if you know your biblical imagery, this is very strong with angels. Yes. Fl- wings of flames, like a seraphim. Yeah, absolutely. And then there's one more picture. He says, on the next stone, Oyasa appeared, followed by many creatures, and apparently making a furrow with some pointed instrument. Another picture showed the furrow being enlarged by the fiffletricky with digging tools. Sorns were piling up the earth, up in pinnacles on each side, and the Rossa seemed to be making water channels. Ransom wondered whether this were a mythical account of the making of the Handramets, or whether they were conceivably artificial in fact. Mm-hmm. So he's seeing the story of Malacandra, yes. but he's not quite sure what this story actually is, how much of this is literal, how much of it is purely symbolic. Well, and he's... Sp- He's starting to kind of read this in order to make some sense. And and what he's reading is mythology, mm. right? He's reading an etiological myth. Here's an explanation about where these things came from. Of course, because this is a, a planet without a bad bent Oryarsa, their myths are probably closer to scientific and geological fact. 
right? So he's kind of reading what one would expect, this, this creation account. You have it in every culture, but this may be closer to the, to the truth. And reading to make sense is one of the big, one of those big themes in Lewis. You see it in Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where Peter is willing to follow the robin because robins are good birds in the books that he's read. Reading is a way of approaching good truth uh, for Lewis. And so now he's kind of reading some of the, the prototypical, archetypical myths of, of the culture. And trying to make sense of it. Because the one that he sees after this really puzzles him. Mm -hmm. Because he sees a representation of the solar system. Mm -hmm. And interestingly enough, despite the fact we've repeatedly said that Lewis is writing these books to show us a medieval worldview, mm -hmm. in the solar system he sees depicted, the sun is actually at the center. Mm -hmm. And he slowly works his way through the planets. He sees the sun, he sees another planet with a trumpet, uh, and he concludes that's Mercury. He sees another planet with what he assumes a breast, and he assumes that that's Venus, and he thinks, oh, what an extraordinary coincidence. They have the same sort of imagery as we do. <laughs> and then he sees Earth, and that knocks him on his butt because mm -hmm. he sees something that's not present there. On all of the other planets, you see a symbol of Noyasa, yeah. but in our planet, it's been wiped away. And before we get you know, too deeply in there, what an extraordinary coincidence that their mythology associates some idea of the female with Venus. It is neither extraordinary, nor is it a coincidence. So what we see here, and I kind of want to shake Ransom, because on the previous page, you can't realize that the wings are an archangel, right? Mm. And now on this page, he thinks that it's just a coincidence that their mythology would be the same as ours. But their mythology probably came to us. They probably had it before we did, right? And probably their mythology was, our mythology came from the solar mythology. And so he's being offered this kind of view into a larger understanding of the truth. And he's a little earthly and condescending here, which is funny. And yes, you see that um, the, the lack. And I love the description of, what was it again, David, that, that, our, that, that, that earth lacks, that Thulchandra lacks? We don't have an Oyasa. Whereas there was this little symbol of the winged flame on each of the planets, ours has, has it overtly missing. And then he gets to the next planet and realizes where he is. This is this is the point. I mean, we spoiled this back in like I think chapter one or two. <laughs> but he it's at this point he now realizes that he's on Mars. Right. The ball was there, but where the flame-like figure should have been, a deep depression of irregular shape had been cut as if to erase it. And so, Matt, here's where we get to one of your favorite quotes: that all reality is iconoclastic. Mm. And an iconoclast is somebody who would go and shatter images. And I've seen this in Utrecht, Holland. I went to one of their big churches and there's a statue of the Madonna and child and somebody has taken a sledgehammer to it and they have knocked off the face. These are Protestants who are defacing a Catholic church. And what you have here is there used to be an Oyarsa in the depiction and it was removed. So this must be incredibly ancient because it must predate the earthly, it must predate the fall of Lucifer. Because it's not as if it was created without an Oyarsa or with a blind or yeah. deaf Oyarsa. It, there was a good Oyarsa, perhaps, perhaps the most glorious Oyarsa, and he has been forcibly removed. That just, that shocked me. That was great. <laughs>
And again, Lazo makes a comment that leaves nothing but crickets. Speechless. You know what, though, Lazo? I will say that speaking of your uh, real-life examples, when I was in Israel, Turkey, we did that trip back when I was in high school. And we went to this one. We went in these caves. The lesson that was kind of taught to us was how Christianity sort of became secluded. And so these caves were like individual chapels for Christians, early Christians. And they had all these images on the wall. Mm-hmm. And there was a very big iconoclast movement that these people went in. And you can actually see the images like chiseled off mm-hmm. because they really were going against the Catholic thing there and chiseling away. And I remember the second guide kind of took me aside. I think I went to a Protestant high school. I was one of only two Catholics on the, the trip. It was like, just be aware. We're about to enter into somewhere where they really defiled stuff but anyways yeah i have witnessed that yeah no it's and that's iconoclasm mm-hmm. so he goes on to meet a fiffletrig and uh listeners i'm sure that you'll see it because he'll post it but david found a pretty good depic- depiction of what a fiffletrig looks like and he's got it in our show notes mm-hmm. he hears this hammering he calls out he's shocked so he calls out in english who's there Um, And the tapping stops. (laughs) A face appears behind another one of these monoliths. And what does he see? Well, I've given it away. First of all, too, this doesn't... What's that movie or show where you have the the man that's like the drill person? But it looks just like this. With the glasses. It looks like an anteater drilling into the... This is going to Sorry, I got nothing. It's going to make that noise a little bit more. Maybe it'll help. Mask singer? No. As you guys talk, I'm going to just think about this. So don't bring me into anything future until I come up with this answer (laughs) because that's all my mind's going to be thinking about. But it looks just like this image, David. I'll think of this. Well, for those who can't see it, uh, the Fiffle Tricky, they're hairless. They have long noses. They're kind of shabby. They have a low forehead, uh, but also a large portion of their head behind their ears. So they're definitely intelligent. They look rather like a frog or a dwarf. Uh, and they're able to actually rest their elbows on the ground while working with mm. their, as it says, mm-hmm. enormous, sensitive, and many-fingered hands. And they can also rotate their heads around like a mantis. Yeah, Lewis has got an artistic reference there too, right? Yeah, to Arthur Rackham. Uh, are you a Rackham fan at all? He's very good, yes. I've got a number of books by Arthur Rackham, and I think that he would have been, can you imagine if the Narnias had been illustrated by Arthur mm. Rackham? Um, and they were alive <laughs> at the same time. Rackham was alive when when the Narnias were written. And Rackham was important to Lewis yes. because he illustrated Siegfried and the Twilight of the Gods, which is mentioned in Surprised by Joy. Which, and this was this was the the event which prompted Lewis's love of Norse myth. Yes, absolutely. I've got a, actually. I have a copy of that book um, that he saw on on Arthur's, uh, not the exact one, but a copy of the book that he saw on Arthur's bedside table that made him friends with Arthur Greaves. So one of the things that the Fiffeltrig is doing is drawing his portrait. And you quickly see in the passage that he's kind of capturing the image of the, uh, of the, man, the man for, for posterity. And when he finally shows it to him, he sounds like a typical artist. He's like, yes, yes, not as good as I hoped. Do better another time. Leave it now. Come and see yourself. And he shows it to Ransom, and Ransom objects because he's almost as wide as he is tall. And the Fiffeltrig said, I didn't want it to be too like, you know, what you look like. Nobody would have believed it. 
Um, and then Ransom has this realization <laughs> that what the Fifletrig is is drawing, or you know, sculpting, etching, is his ideal the Fifletrig's idealization of what a human looks like. And so he's Ransom then becomes the kind of representative of all humans uh, for all eternity there on Malacandra. I did. I just think when I first read this, when it talked about that he looked something like a fungus, and then it said that this was his idealization of humans. So is his idealization of humans a fungi? <laughs> no, but he turns out to be a fun guy. Speaking of languishing conversations. <laughs> and this is one of my favorite moments. Um, so just as the resurrection makes death work backwards, what you see here, he taught he asks the Fiffeltrig why they speak the same language as the, the Hrasa. And what you get is this great explanation as you'd expect from kind of the scientific engineering type. He says, well, the Hrosa are best at language, so we adopt their language and it's got the best words. Mm. So we let the, the Hrasa, I'm paraphrasing, we let the Hrasa speak and make poetry. We let the Sorns think about things and they let us make things. And so you have this real harmony of the races. And what you have is an undoing of the myth of the Tower of Babel. Mm -hmm. People of a common language got together to to basically kind of exalt themselves up unto God, almost to, you know, it's the, the height of idolatry. What you have in this culture is that they had separate languages, but they adopted one in order so that they could work together in harmony. And what you have here is, I don't know, I mean, maybe it's a post-Edenic unfallen world. Right. And and it's how the, the nation should have worked together. So the anti babble, the re babble, the unbabble, the um the new babble is what's going on. Or here. maybe a Pentecost without all of the mess before it. <laughs> because Pentecost is itself an undoing of the Tower of Babel. Because yes. you have them all yes. proclaiming the greatness of God and everybody hearing and understanding. Absolutely. Absolutely. One really interesting thing about this discussion is is mentioned that you almost lose something if you try and translate out of the Frosa language. Mm -hmm. And it made me think of Lewis's essay, Transposition. Mm -hmm. And what they're doing is they're choosing the language which is richest to retain all of that information. Yeah. Whether it's the, the deep thoughts of the Sorns or what the Fiffeltriggy ultimately sculpt out of gold and silver, sun's blood and star's milk. Yeah. So there was a collection of essays uh, done by a former student of Lewis's, and it came out a few years after he died. And it's called Patterns of Love and Courtesy. And I think uh, John Lawler put it together. I think that you could probably call the interspecies relations on Malacandra patterns of love and courtesy. They love each other so well and are selfless. They go out of themselves towards each other that they don't need that their, their language to rule. They can let... Um, the Ross's language rule. And this kind of loving, humble courtesy for the Sorn to take this great prize from another planet and to say, give it to some random fiffletrig, <laughs> right? Not me, give it to, it reminds me a little bit of, of uh, frankly, the way that Jerry Root lives his life. Uh, I, would, I would have to call Jerry Root kind of fundamentally Malachandran <laughs> because he has this kind of generosity and courtesy and respect like uh, like we've talked about and 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 honor for others and so that's one of the things that can happen to you after a life of pursuing Lewis so maybe we can exp uh, at least I can aspire to that so 
What else does he find out about from the Fiffeltrigi about life and culture here where he is? Well, we discover that they don't live in the narrow valleys, but in dark, warm mines mm -hmm. that are also filled with forests and illuminated by fire and filled with the sounds of hammers. Mm -hmm. So they're very much like the dwarves, the Lord of the Rings. And it's also a world painted on walls. Mm -hmm. So we mentioned before that these guys are the artists. We've seen some of their work already on the gong. We've seen it on these monoliths. Well, apparently their entire culture is like that. But artists, not for, not purely or, ornamentally. They also are, no. are mythographers. So they are writing in images the story of the world. And it's sad that, that Ransom has to pull himself away. He doesn't have time to finish reading all of the, all of the story. But I, man, I can't wait to get back to Malacondra and actually read it. <laughs> Maybe iconographers is a better word to describe them. That's good. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And the conversation turns to the usual stuff that Ransom cares about, like how is everything ordered? Uh, and it turns out that all of them work in the mines, they extract the metals that they need for their own work. And this uh, fiffle trick doesn't think much of Ransom's description of you know, forced labor and segmented work that we have here on earth. And once again, the subject of food comes up. And here Ransom explicitly admits he doesn't actually know if there's enough food for everyone on earth. Mm-hmm. Is that there might be enough for everyone. I can't get anyone to give me a straight answer. I think that's Lewis's question. Hmm. I think that that's a reflection of a curiosity that Lewis had. Do you think it's also a reflection of a view that Lewis doesn't love the ordering of the economic system of highly specialized labor where you contribute your one thing over and over and over and then you get rewarded for that and then you use those rewards to purchase everything else? Because it makes it sound like Carrie asked the question, is that boring on a daily basis? Do they actually enjoy this? Not only boring, but also dangerous. Because remember where we are. This is 1937, yeah. right? Hitler just became chancellor a year before. And in 1937, we are not even 20 years past the Russian Revolution. And so the economics of the, of the world are absolutely a going question as they are now about how people are treated. And you've got Germany, you know, sinking into this incredible depression. You've got the Russian response. And so the way that the economics work and the question about whether or not there's enough food for everybody is a question that kind of contributes to World War II, which is about to launch as Lewis is writing. And so these economic and societal mm -hmm. questions are not just kind of curiosities. But the stakes are incredibly huge. And Henry Ford has had his assembly line. Yes. Where craftsmen are now atomized to do one particular job. Right. So each person can do their bit, but no one person can build an entire car. Yeah. That still amazes me. I mean, and that still happens today. But could, I mean, I see what he's getting at. Could you imagine being on an assembly line for 10 years and your job is like this one thing mm -hmm. over and over and over and over. Well, and this idea of scarcity of food comes into play in not very many years. Within the next couple of years, Britain goes on rat rationing and it stays on rationing well into the 50s. And an American, American benefactors sent Lewis things like coffee and envelopes and, and, uh, and hams, certainly. Hams. Um, <laughs> and writing paper. And and so this idea of the scarcity of the resources and the scarcity of food is looming over the entire world. And this is at a time when Germany has just had their, their inflation go so crazy that they're printing 10 million mark notes. 
and so this is this is really i think a reflection to some degree of the times in in the late 30s when lewis is writing it well we end up the chapter with one more uh, question that i think is worth discussing david talk to us about their uh, their <laughs> females well because they've just been discussing work you know what's keeping people in the minds what keeps people at work who's making them do it ransom asks who is it that keeps you guys doing what you do and to which and i'm going to try and pronounce his name the fifth tricky is called kanakak <laughs> kanaka baraka there we go kanaka baraka kanaka baraka <laughs> okay we need to do this under, under less scotch well the answer that he gets back is our females <laughs> so who makes them set, stay doing what they're doing the women folk and it turns out that women are of more importance in fiffle tricky culture than among the Saroni. Love this. Read that part. So he says, our females, said the fiffle trick with a piping noise, which was apparently his equivalent for a laugh. Are your females of more account among you than those of the other now among you? Very greatly. The Sorns make least account of the females, and we make most. Hmm. And quite what you can make of that, I guess it depends on what you regard these different species as possibly representing or alluding to. But if we're going to say that the Saroni are the philosopher kings, mm -hmm. and we're going to say that the Fiffeltrigi are the artisans or workmen's, he's basically saying that uh, the blacksmith's wives uh, have more power than those of the academics, uh, of those professor wives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, and I think that in between you've got the artist wives. Right, mm. and you see a real tenderness in the in the Rosa about their wives, and they love making is a great pleasure, and they delight in their children, and so I think that yeah, I think that there certainly are some parallels. So, what a rich and full chapter, but also some diversity, which is interesting, mm -hmm. because if this is an unfallen world, or it's much more unfallen than ours, even there you find diversity of culture mm -hmm. between the different groups. Absolutely, good. Well, as we wrap up, Matt, did you find your movie? I spent five minutes looking for it. Nothing. <laughs> I'm disappointed. But if you find it before I post this, shoot me a text and I'll share it and I'll let everyone know. Oh, I'm going to spend 30 minutes to an hour after this looking it up. <laughs> that's great. That'll go in the show. I just didn't want to. I was just getting way behind on your guys' conversation. I was like, all right, that's enough looking. Yes. Well, as we wrap up, we've got our listener question. What is the best island you've ever visited? Oh, that's a good one. Great Britain. Next. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Apart from Great Britain and <laughs> Ireland, what is the best island you've ever visited? Um, and then I as a sub-question. Wait, 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 wait. Oh, I thought this ahead. was the one we were going to finally do, which which one of us is Fiffeltriggy, Sorn, oh, and okay. Harasa, because we now have been introduced to all three of them. I patiently okay. held off last week. So. Okay. Delayed gratification. We will have a three-part question, and you can answer whichever one that you'd <laughs> like. But uh, Matt, what's the question? Out of the three species, Hanau, the Fiffeltrigi, the Harasa, and the Sorn, <laughs> match the three co-hosts of Pines with Jack up with one. So who is which one of us is which? So it's the MBTI. It's the uh, the the Malachandrian Bushian uh, temperament uh, instrument. <laughs> so yes, our personality types. Uh, I've got mm -hmm. my opinions. I know who I'm definitely not. 
But so yes, what also beside apart from the uh, from the British Isles, what uh, what's the best island you've ever visited? Um, and then as a third possibility, if you want to go all Tolkieny, and there's never a, a reason not to, if you could spend a season in Meldal or in in uh, in Rivendell or in Lothlorien, which would you choose and why? So. Feel free to email us at contact at pintswithjack.com. Use the contact us form on the website or comment on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, MySpace. Um, so. And now I hear in the background the call for final drinks. So we'd love to give a uh, raise a glass and give our great hearty thanks to our beloved sound engineer, audio engineer, Taylor Schroll, as well as our listeners and our Patreon supporters particularly our top tier supporters and listeners, we have an opening this week. So mm. there's Steve and Matt and Erica. There's Marvin, Joel, Deborah, and Amanda. And you may notice that there was Deborah, but not Deborah number two. So we were pitching for a Deborah number three and Deborah number two dropped out. So if you know any Debras who should support us, would you welcome that along with those of any other name? This is a rare opportunity. I mean, it's it not is. every day that you have a Deborah number two spot open up. And don't kid yourself. If you were thinking of becoming Deborah number three, but wishing you were Deborah number two, remember that. This might be the only chance to become Deborah number two. I tell you what, I'm willing to make this offer. I don't know if it's legal, but David, if somebody <laughs> gets a Deborah number two and a Deborah number three, I will give to Deborah two. Deborah three and whoever wrangles them a signed copy of mere Christians. We'll send that to them. How about mm. that? We also should do out of just pure curiosity, no matter <laughs> what tier Deborah two or Deborah three support us at, we'll do a three way <laughs> FaceTime call because I really want to just okay. meet whoever steps up to the challenge. You know what? We got to do a four way call. You know what, who yeah. we should invite? Of course. If she wants, we should invite Deborah number one, who is the yes, fountain of all Yes, of course, the because she stayed tried and- uh, Yes. She's the founder of the Feast of Deborahs. <laughs> so them and any other name, of course. And of course, we raise our glasses and lift our hearts to Amanda and to Thomas and to Bill and Joanna, to our friend Bud, I'm drinking your scotch today, friend. Shane, for Kay, for Paul, for Kimberly and Gillis, for Gary and Stephen, Matt and Kelly, for Chris, James and Kate, for Peter, David and Angela and Rowdy. We pray for our listeners and all the prayer requests on our Slack channel every Tuesday. If you've enjoyed this episode, please check out the post on our website, pintswithjack.com, which has artistic renderings of Meldalorn. So, Spread the word, uh, lift your glasses, celebrate the resurrection, and Matt. Please join us next time. When we'll continue f going further up and further in. Iwilij Jakjaj. Iwilij Jakjaj. Iwilij Jakraj. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs>